0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 35 of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. The members of the Everything Compliance Roundtable are Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Michael Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors at Affiliated Monitors, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and I'm Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist. On this episode, we dedicate it solely to the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, and specifically his testimony and that of Dr. Christina Ford. We take a look at it from a variety of angles. Matt considers the protocols a corporation should have in place to perform interviews and investigations. Jay looks at this from the window of redemption in honor of the Jewish High Holidays. How do you seek redemption? What lessons do you focus on? And does the Torah provide any guidance? Michael Volkoff, a former prosecutor, former staffer, a former congressional staffer, a well-known compliance practitioner who's done numerous internal investigations, takes a look at the witness's demeanor and what that might tell us or guidance that might give us as to veracity or not. Jonathan Armstrong uh, is on assignment today, so I take his slot where I take a look at the demeanor Uh, demonstrated by Brett Kavanaugh and Christina Ford and the type of person that it would portend as a senior executive in a corporation. It's a fascinating exploration of a deeply political topic that we take in a different direction. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and we're here for another episode of Everything Compliance. Today, we're going to take up the entire episode on the Kavanaugh hearings and the process leading up to uh, the hearings which were held yesterday. We're, we're recording this on Friday, September 27th. So with that introduction, uh, Matt, uh, you want to give us your perspective uh, on this uh, from really a compliance angle.
1: Yeah, thank you, Tom. So I have written several columns now about uh the Brett Kavanaugh's nomination and the most recent of them were still several days before uh, Thursday's public hearing with uh, Christine Blasley Ford and then Brett Kavanaugh and that really shocking kind of thing. So that that was my, my mindset before all of what happened yesterday. But all of that said, aside from what you might think of Brett Kavanaugh's judicial views you still have a very interesting lessons a corporate compliance officer can extract about how would investigations of matters like this, how would they work in the corporate context? And what went wrong with the investigation uh, into Brett Kavanaugh or the lack thereof? And what would you want to avoid or consider if you had something similar in a corporate organization? And more than anything else now, especially with uh, the spectacle of yesterday's hearing, it comes out about the importance of having clear, predetermined, thorough investigation protocols that you actually follow, which did not happen with Brett Kavanaugh once Professor Ford's allegations of sexual assault against him surfaced. Um, So I went through a couple of things that happened that I think in the corporate context would not fly. So if you're a corporate ethics and compliance officer or a legal officer, try and get your head around. Let's say that you are, um, investigating an allegation like this for somebody who might be the CEO or the general counsel or someone like that, who's been groomed for this. And now the board has to investigate these sudden allegations. So what went wrong here? First off, speaking to all relevant and pertinent witnesses, not done. Um, There were multiple accusers with relatively serious, I think, credible enough to warrant investigation, multiple accusers bringing up accusations against Brett Kavanaugh. Um, There was the woman whose name escapes me now, but written, uh, represented by Michael Avenatti. Yes, he is a showboat lawyer. So what? Just because he is a showboat with a certain political bias, that does not mean that the allegation his client brought forward should therefore be dismissed, but it was dismissed out of hand. When she provided a sworn statement against a sitting federal judge, I mean, that was a serious thing step step for that woman to take. Her allegations, not considered. Uh, The people at Yale who came out in the New Yorker piece who had some somewhat hazy but nonetheless uh, supportive uh, evidence and recollections for the type of man, that professor Ford said Brett Kavanaugh was not called those witnesses. They were not uh, brought forward. And of course, obviously Mark judge uh, who is Brett Kavanaugh's best buddy from those days back then uh, he could clearly have had something useful to contribute to this investigation because he allegedly was in the room when Brett Kavanaugh assaulted uh professor Ford witness, not called. Um, So you had all of that. Aside from that, let's go back to the original accuser, Professor Ford. Um, You know, what was not done there? You know, actually, it was both, I think, Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans did a rather poor job of helping her come forward with her accusations. First and foremost, she wanted to be anonymous. She submitted her complaint actually before Brett Kavanaugh was formally nominated, trying to tell the Trump administration, don't do this because it will be a circus. And she was ignored. But all of that aside, she was looking to do this anonymously and her identity came out. Um, I think many compliance officers would be mortified if they had an anonymous accuser step forward with something sensitive. And then somehow other parts of the organization outed that accuser's identity anyways, let's not kid ourselves. Ethics and compliance officers would be livid if somebody else in the enterprise found out an anonymous accusation you had and you're trying to figure out what to do and they shotgun that person's identity across the whole corporation. I know it happens. That does not mean it's right. And ethics and compliance officers would have to think long and hard about how do you handle this because the Senate mishandled it. Um, Even something as simple as uh, Lindsey Graham, and I, I could go on all day about how he disgraced himself yesterday, but Lindsey Graham had said, how come nobody told Professor Ford that Senate investigators would fly out to California to hear what she had to say? And she didn't know that they apparently would be willing to do that. Now, I get it that Graham is probably trying to discredit uh, Professor Ford, but nonetheless, again, just because he has a certain bias and angle doesn't mean that his point isn't valid. Investigators should have done more to help Professor Ford come forward with her allegations, and they didn't. So there's another strike against um, how this investigation was handled. And then thirdly is just the overall professionalism of the investigation itself. Now, again, let's go back to what ha- what would you want to do compliance officer listening to this podcast if you were suddenly aware of an anonymous allegation against the ceo or general counsel candidate of a very serious nature like this very first thing you do call outside counsel here's the complaint investigate it you guys do it not us has to be objective in this instance in this world in political world the closest thing you have to outside counsel is the fbi investigation not done and the fbi you know it's no big deal to them to investigate a case that is 35 years old with hazy recollections they have cold case squads at the fbi this is what they do time and again they have professionals who would be able to look into a matter like this and they should have been the ones to um conduct this investigation not done uh senate staffers instead we're conducting this investigation. So imagine, you know, that you had uh, some serious allegation like that, and the board is going to have to make a decision on what to do with these allegations. And the board members farm that out to their executive assistants to run the investigation instead of giving it to outside counsel. How dumb of an idea do you think that would be? In the corporate world, that just, it would not be, happen. It would be a total train wreck, and we all know it. And that is the, the train wreck that happened here. Uh, and then, lastly, in the actual hearing itself, we had this appalling stunt of bringing in this Arizona prosecutor, Rachel Mitchell, who I actually have some sympathy for because I'm sure that really this is probably the last thing she wanted to do with her week. But very clearly, the board directors in charge of this investigation, who were the Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee, who were all men, all older all white are looking to uh, investigate a a woman or investigate allegations against a woman. So they don't like the political optics of them interrogating this woman. So let's hire a woman to uh, do the prosecution or do the investigation, do the questioning. That was not a normal investigation or hearing procedure for the Senate. They don't do that. And they deviated from it now, not because it would lead to a better result, but because it would sell better, they thought, to the audience. Now, of course, more than half the country, I think, probably thought that looked terrible. And half of their base, or however small fraction of their base there is, probably thought it was fine. But deviation from standard practice, never mind that standard practice probably wasn't that good, but they deviated from it. And then as soon as Judge Kavanaugh came to testify. They dropped that practice anyway. So this really was a whole pretense, rather than any even passing token gesture to treating the accuser with respect and treating the accuser in some sort of supposed but really ridiculous idea of trying to get to the truth. Uh, That was uh, hiring Rebecca or Rachel Mitchell was just a ridiculous sham, and they they all knew it. And they discarded even the sham as soon as. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh went full Ike Turner uh, once he gave his opening statement and then all the other Republican board directors or senators followed through. Um, So a few more minutes. I'll say the other big thing that I think this weighs on me is uh, I think that it really shows the importance of the impartiality of a board. And in the corporate world, you know boards actually can be sued by shareholders if they for dereliction of duty, really, if they don't have uh, the best interest of the institution itself at heart. Now, we don't have that ability here in the political world, but really the Senate, Congress overall, but the Senate in this instance, they are the board for the United States of America, and they were derelict in their duty because they threw out all pretense of process. They threw out all pretense of protecting the institution of the U.S. or the Supreme Court, uh, and they threw out all supposed reference to ethical principles such as finding the truth even if we don't like it. It devolved into what I think we're going to see today and tomorrow and just this raw exercise of power, and that does nothing for the overall control environment and corporate culture of this country. Because the Democrats, if they retake power in November, and I think this is a big, big thing for Democrats, especially in the House, uh, they are going to circle right back into this. They are going to relitigate uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. I think he has opened himself to allegations of perjury. I think he has opened himself to possibility of getting disbarred. Um, you know, I, there are many questions that they are going to look into, and he really did smear. Uh, the whole institution of the Supreme Court. I mean, he actually said in his testimony, what goes around comes around Democrats. Um, you can't have an impartial judge then sitting on the Supreme Court. He's not going, I know he's not going to recuse himself, but you know, his all pretense of ethics and impartiality have gone out the window now. And now he's just a cheap partisan hack, which I think is exactly why Donald Trump hired him because you know These questions are going to come up, and he's, the, the one person I'd love to know their opinion about all of this would be Chief Justice John Roberts. I don't necessarily agree with all of his views, but he has sometimes shown that the institution of the court in the United States and the will of the people are more important than his politics. And now he's going to have this, like I said, this Ike Turner sitting on the Supreme Court grumbling and seething for the next 30 years about how people are out to get him. And uh, what is that going to do to the reputation of the court, to the corporate culture of this country? It's hard to say, but that was an entire train wreck. Um, I'll I'll stop there. I, I could go on for all day. But, you know, those those are some of the points in my head.
0: Mike Volkoff, you have been a DOJ prosecutor. You have been on House and Senate committees where you have either interrogated, questioned or observed questioning of witnesses. You have done numerous corporate investigations uh, where you question witnesses. And what I really wanted to visit you with you about is the demeanor we saw at the hearings on Thursday. What did you make of that demeanor? And how would you advise someone who is in a uh, FCPA or other serious investigation to consider witness demeanor going forward?
2: Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, I mean, i I was riveted by the hearing, and um, I thought it was a really important hearing. and um, I, I, the, there were so many lessons learned from the manner in which people uh, testified. and it uh, I often do you know webinars and podcasts on how to interview people. Uh, what to look for, and this was sort of your laundry list of do's and don'ts. Um, And in terms of making credibility determinations, I I didn't find it very hard to make a credibility determination. First, uh, let's start with Dr. Ford. I was incredibly moved by her testimony. I thought she was a very, very good witness. And the reason – Besides her demeanor and her care with which she answered questions, um, I thought that uh, her ability to say, I don't know or I don't recall, um, is probably one of the best pieces of advice you can ever give a witness, which is don't speculate, don't guess. And it makes you more believable if you have a story to tell and you don't know every little detail. Um, People get in trouble when they try to provide an explanation for everything. And um, uh, that is probably the number one rule. She also was very careful, and I always tell witnesses, to listen to the question. And she listened to each question, and when it wasn't very clear, she would say that. And I tell people to do that, but they rarely do it. But she was so precise in her uh, answers that I thought that was on a, uh, just a remarkable uh, presentation. The fact is she was emotional and it did af- affect her presentation, and I didn't think that it took away from that. If anything, I think it bolstered it. And I think people could truly feel uh, and understand what she had uh, what she had been through. The fact that there are details surrounding an event that occurred 36 years ago that she couldn't recall was not troubling to me. By the fact that she, it was 36 years ago, and the part that would stick with her would be the traumatic part, uh, the part that was the most upsetting. Now, uh, and I hate, and I'm not going to exaggerate, but we saw a completely different presentation by the second witness. Uh, 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 Judge Kavanaugh and uh, a couple of observations about Judge Kavanaugh. Um, to me, there was, I guess there were two comparisons I had. One was, and this is more of a, a humorous one, not really humorous, but there's some degree of truth in it. It reminded me of my daughter when she was 17 or my son, when he was 17, and we would take the car keys away for a weekend because he had done something wrong. And this is what we would hear but I'm um, innocent, uh, crying, uh, things like that. Now, that, but more importantly, what I found is uh, his performance was exactly like a certain defendants that I have cross examined and that I've come up against and who are emotional, they, are, um, uh, they obfuscate, they ask questions. I, when I put on a cooperating witness who had pled guilty to drug conspiracy and murders, the last thing I told them, do not ever get angry when you're testifying, because they're going to insinuate a lot of bad things about you. And number two, don't ask the prosecutor a question. Like, don't ever ask a rhetorical question. And uh, the judge violated every one of those rules over and over again. Um, His uh, victimhood, I'm going to tell you, if this was a criminal case in front of a jury, a jury would have convicted him right away. Um, And I thought his demeanor, obfuscation, his lack of respect for the senators and his overall tone was uh, insulting to the whole institution in the process. Now, I'm not here to defend the process, but when you're part of the process and participating in it, and I've testified before Congress before, and people have asked me hard questions, and I try the best that I can, but I'm always you, you always have to be respectful to the people you're dealing with in the institution, no matter what you may uh, feel about them. Uh, Then last, I was unimpressed by the prosecutor because I don't think that she came across uh, from Arizona as very fair. I also think it was demeaning to her to put her at a little table as opposed to giving her a seat at the dais, uh, which in the House, on the House Judiciary Committee, there would be a seat uh, for counsel next to the chairperson. To uh, make certain, you know, to conduct questioning, and that's normally the way to do it. I I didn't understand why why they placed her on the floor. Uh, I thought that was weird. So those were my you know first observations. I I think that uh, the Kavanaugh and the drinking of the water. I think the crying was more anger and repressed anger, uh, and the uh, the inability to answer. Uh, drinking questions was just incredible to me. If I were him, I just would have said, I did drink a lot. Uh, I drank in high school like a lot me and my friends. We drank a lot of beer. Did I ever black out? I you know, I would have answered that truthfully. Yes, there were times that I blacked out, or no there, there wasn't. Um, but I did drink and I drank in in college, but you know what? I got myself together. I did well in high school. I did you know, my grades didn't suffer, and I still performed well at Yale and got into Yale Law School or wherever, and I never thought uh, that and my drinking was more sort of adolescent type of drinking or young teenager drinking or young man drinking, and I ultimately got that in, under control by the time I went to law school or, or started to work as an attorney. That's all I would have said, and you know what? That would have taken a lot of the air out of all of this thing. I don't have good answers for him on Devil's Triangle, on the Renata alumni. Uh, those were all uh, lies to me, and he couldn't even admit that he drank to the point of uh, throwing up during Beach Week. And I will say this: I grew, uh, we lived in that area and raised my family in the same area, and I know what Beach Week is. Uh, and Beach Week is a, as a matter of fact. Uh, we didn't let our son go to Beach Week. Uh, he and his friends went and drove to the world's largest roller coaster in Ohio because Beach Week is notorious for people getting drunk and getting arrested or having problems down at the beach in Delaware. So um, all of that is to say that he, he, he violated the cardinal rule, which is, which is admit the little things and be truthful on all the little things and then deny the big thing. If you want to lie, that's what he's going to do. But at least to be effective, admit the little things. It doesn't mean you have to deny everything, because doing that certainly is not going to um, uh, is not going to persuade anyone. If anything, it, it raises more potential
0: perjury issues. So Jay Rosen, uh, Jay, um, this past week or this week, I guess. Uh, we had one of the jewish high holidays and from what little i know part of your celebration and uh, frankly your reflection is thinking about redemption and so i was wondering if uh, you might be able to address the the issue of uh, redemption and and really does does the core does the torah or any of uh, other sacred writings from judaism give us any guidance for the modern day discussions around this or even practical advice.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Tom. I think it's a a really timely subject matter. And, uh, with the way, uh, the lunar calendar works, when we just had Rosh Hashanah, um, and Yom Kippur, which are the new years and the day of atonement. So it's, uh, very interesting that this, uh, trial and not trial, but really the, this testimony has come up and, uh, just to kind of frame this in um, the movie, uh, in the movies, uh, there was a, a movie which is one of the first talking movies released by Warner Brothers, called The Jazz Singer. And in it, uh, Je- Al Jolson plays a cantor who is kind of uh, um, split between two worlds. That he has his duty of going to the temple and chanting on uh, Yom Kippur, but he also, you know, wants to uh, have his secular life too. It was remade with uh, Neil Diamond in the 80s. And the significance of Kol Nidre is basically, it is the one night a year when all Jews come to temple. And basically, it's um, a recitation of an old Aramaic law, and it basically says... Uh, that it's a formula that proactively annuls any personal or religious oaths or prohibition made upon oneself to God for the next year. So this would preemptively avoid the sin of breaking vows made to God, which cannot be held or, um, you know, be completed. So um, basically what happens at this service, this prayer is said three times, And if you kind of take the legal formula and break it on down, it says all vows that we are likely to make, all oaths and pledges we are likely to take between this Yom Kippur and the next, we publicly renounce. Let them all be relinquished and abandoned, null and void, neither firm nor established. Let our vows, pledges, and oaths be considered neither vows, pledges, or oaths. So it sounds a little bit circular, but what you take out of that. Is the things, the sins between man and God are basically absolved and saying everything that happened in the last year, you know, God and I are cool on that. But where the issue comes in is sins between people. So between one person and the other, the only way that you can uh, get um, uh, your duty released is that you have to go up and apologize. And um, basically, we have two people yesterday who got on the public stage here and spellbound a nation, and they each uh, allege that they are 100 percent accurate in their recoll- recollections and this is the type of thing that the liturgy is talking about that when you have to make amends it's from person to person and I know you're going to talk a little bit about this in your piece Tom but I think that is the moral dilemma that we just saw played out on the stage and I know Matt expressed that there's a lot of consternation out there because it's really played out just to be a real uh, partisan um, screaming match in the press but if, if you take a look at it from religious perspective and the perspective about getting redemption, um, I I think it really poses an interesting view to take a look at what we witnessed yesterday.
0: So along the lines of uh, Jay's thoughts, uh, an organization I belong to has a saying that uh, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And that uh, really is something that I think is really applicable here, that What happened in the past is you have to own it and you have to live with it. Uh, But that doesn't mean it it has to define you going forward. And part of the obligation that this organization has is to make amends to those who uh, may have been harmed by your conduct. And uh, unless doing such amends would actually make the situation worse. So there are ways to, to work through these kinds of issues. And um, the um, uh, I just don't think, uh, unfortunately, we saw any of that yesterday. Um, I would like to really ask, or for my uh, part in this podcast, gents, I really wanted to talk about the tone Kavanaugh took, first in consideration of judicial temperament, um, and then, uh, or perhaps it, The end, some thoughts on judicial temperament. But if you were sitting as a chief compliance officer, if you were sitting in a corporation, is the temperament we saw yesterday something that you would want in your organization? And what are the implications of having people with that type of temperament? Now, whether Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with everything she had to put up with in her professional career, would tolerate someone like that, acting like that, asking if you've ever blacked out, uh, I think uh, that would be a very interesting discussion for debate. But if you had someone of Kavanaugh's temperament and whatever they were accused of, whatever they were charged with, that attacks his accuser, that attacks those who even ask those questions, how are they going to treat subordinates? How are they going to treat board members? How are they going to treat their fellow senior executives, if this is at the senior executive level, what does it say about the company's uh, institutional justice or institutional fairness if you're going to be literally berated for even raising your hand or raising an allegation? The temperament I saw yesterday, uh, I have uh, probably all, all three of us or all four of us have worked in law firm, or excuse me, worked in places where uh, it was um, very dynamic. And in law firms I worked at up until the time that I became a solo, um, it was um, very dynamic. Uh, a lot of type A personalities involved, a lot of uh, yelling and screaming, and a lot of uh, verbal abuse, um, and not knowing there was any different way to be or or do um, I just thought that's the way things were? And then when I went in the corporate world, I actually found out no, it's it's not like that. It was much more collegial. Um, there were not the kind of harsh words said in my in my presence, uh, perhaps uh, at higher levels or lower levels on uh, you know in the boardroom or the shop shop floor, of which I was in the middle, so I didn't uh, uh, deal with those situations. Nevertheless, I think the temperament you saw. Uh, from Kavanaugh yesterday, if you saw that in an interview, if you saw that in an investigation, if you saw that uh, when someone uh, had to answer an allegation that was properly raised within a company's reporting system, I think that would be uh, very, very troubling and could lead to um, really uh, or be some indicia that a person was not temperamentally suited to being uh, promoted to senior management or perhaps even uh, being in the position they were in. So I was really concerned with that temperament. And if this country is going to be led from Washington um, by people with that temperament, I think it's going to lead to a degradation of not only American society, but even American culture. Now, um, Millennials, and I, I learned a new phrase uh, last week, centennials. Uh, millennials and centennials may be loath to put up with that, and they may be willing to walk, and they may be willing to speak truth to power more than people of my generation or uh, Gen Xers um, uh, as well. But the ha- to have that kind of temperament in senior management, I would think would make it a very unattractive place uh, for people to work, for absolute fear that you couldn't couldn't raise your hand and say anything. And if you can't raise your hand and say something about the negative stuff or the things that could get a company in trouble, whether legally or reputationally, then you have a situation where people won't raise their hand to improve anything, to improve process, uh, to improve a procedure, to improve an internal control. And that leads to more inefficient um, organizations and certainly ones that not only are Uh, uh, less enjoyable to work at, but probably at the end of the day, less profitable as well. So I was really concerned with the temperament I saw yesterday, and it was clear to me that that is not the judicial temperament that I was uh, taught, either in the educational setting or the professional setting. Um, Whether or not you agreed or disagreed with a judge's politics, you always respected the office. You always respected the court. And that type of judicial temperament will lead to a disrespect of the court because the judge, that judge's temperament would be so antithetical to anything close to reasonableness. So I found the temperament very, very disconcerting. If um, I was sitting on a hiring committee or I was sitting as a CCO and I saw that type of a temperament, uh in a hiring process in a investigation or in an interview i would uh think that that could be very troubling for a corporation and i think it could really it would show that that person could uh engage in conduct down the road which could lead to uh certainly reputational damage to the company and perhaps even significant liability
1: as well tom can i offer a thought here sure so you know, it so happens that this week I've been working on a different project about corporate culture, and I was rereading the book by Jim Collins that came out in 2001, Good to Great. It is one of these business kind of guru management books where he looked at companies that had been doing okay for a long while and then suddenly became really profitable and successful, and why? And he spends a chapter looking at the type of leaders they have, and he came up with a five-point scale and actually the best leaders, the level five leaders, he did say above all else, they are humble and open to criticism and generally have no ego whatsoever. And by leading in that manner and by letting that attitude permeate their culture, uh, people are more likely to think about problems, try to solve problems, try to solve them constructively. And I am sure Anybody who thinks about speak-up cultures, and it would be everybody listening, would agree with that basic principle. And it did strike me, as you were talking, that really Brett Kavanaugh has just shown himself to be the opposite of that. And what happens when you don't have a speak-up culture is you wind up with this sniveling, gr- you know, grimy, investigative, sniping culture. And that is what we are going to have in the organization of the United States of America and the federal government like I mentioned before, Democrats are going to investigate him if they take power in November. And his attitude on display yesterday means they probably will take at least one chamber, if not two. Um, so Democrats, I think, rightly might investigate him, but they're not going to be doing anything else that might also be productive and necessary. And if Brett Kavanaugh thinks that you know people were out to get him before, dude, you have no clue how much people will be looking behind your back to see what they can find, what they can document, what they can leak. This is his life from now until probably the end. And, you know, he's really going to need to think about that. And it is all because he did not have that temperament, like you said, and like Jim Collins had identified in his book, that's all based on humility and openness to hearing criticism of the organization and of process and not taking it personally. And he just blew it, like I have never seen before.
0: So, gentlemen, uh, I'm not sure if I've had a catharsis or I'm even more depressed, but uh, perhaps uh, through our uh, ranting and or raving shout-out process, um, we might uh, find some closures. And now on to the rants. Mike Volkov, you have a rant for us today?
2: Well, I think I have a, na- uh, a national rant. Uh, I it, it was uh, by the end of the week, I was pretty depressed. Uh, I really felt like um, our institutions are deteriorating. I, for the first time, felt like our uh, Supreme Court is in jeopardy uh, of falling prey to, you know, the political winds. Um, and just the whole atmosphere in the country right now in terms of, uh, how this is being handled and why the patriarchy is, uh, attacking, uh, women, uh, and belittling women, uh, and it continues. And, uh, it was really, uh, upsetting to be honest with you. I was very moved by Dr. Ford and, uh, and uh, very depressed about sort of the outcome, uh, at least where we are right now. So, I know that's not much of a, an original thought, but it's certainly one that uh, it was an important week in our in our country's history. I thought.
0: Matt Kelly, do you have a rant for us?
1: caught and killed in Dallas in that um, terrible tragedy, where a Dallas police officer. A white woman by the name of Amber Geiger, uh, who lived one floor beneath Botham Jean, went and tried to enter his apartment, apparently by mistake, thinking it was her apartment. She finds Jean uh, believes that he is an intruder and shoots and kills him. Uh, She has since been, I believe, fired from the Dallas Police Department. And I think she's also been charged with manslaughter. But all of that aside, uh, what timothy ryan did at pwc was he sent around an email asking all of the people at pwc to think about race in america and how difficult it is for their black co-workers to do all of the normal things that white people in this country take for granted and it should be noted timothy ryan is white um But he said, and I'll just read from the email that he sent around, emotions are raw not only in Dallas but across the firm. It is important that we all take time to understand the experiences our underrepresented minorities and especially in the situation our black colleagues that they experience in everyday life. So we can all be better coworkers, friends, and allies. Now, Timothy Ryan didn't have to do that. He could have issued a statement of condolences to the family. I know PwC helped to defray some of the funeral costs and all of that. They could have stopped, and everybody would have said, classy act for PwC. Timothy Ryan took it to the next step where he was trying to get his organization to confront difficult issues without any clear answers. It's not going to stop the racism that does still exist in America, but he is moving in the right direction, even without any clear evidence or proof that he'll be able to improve the situation, but it's the right thing to do anyways, and he's just doing it. That is ethical leadership. That is exactly the sort of stuff that we should be seeing from our leaders in government and corporate America, regardless of how much we might not see it elsewhere. Timothy Ryan really nailed it, and he does deserve a rave, and so does PwC generally for trying to tackle a very difficult issue in a difficult time.
3: Jay Rosen. So I guess this is going to fall more into the rant thing. Um, Several years ago, Tom Jackson, who used to host NFL Sunday Countdown with uh, Chris Berman, and they'd wrap up all the highlights, uh, declared uh, hands down that the new England Patriots hated their coach, Bill Belichick. Uh, once again, the Patriots are starting off kind of underwhelmingly with one and two, and they are facing the, and, uh, and the AFC East-leading Miami Dolphins, Dolphins three and who are three and zero oh right now. So um, it got me to thinking that you know a lot of people don't want to blow the alarm yet and saying New England has been here before, and you know September is basically an extension of training camp. But um, recently this week it was revealed that the New England Patriots seriously considered trading Gronk uh, to the Detroit Lions. And I just think, um, to Matt's point a little bit earlier, about what makes organizations kind of excellent, I think the um, Brady and Belichick uh, partnership is getting a bit long in the tooth. And uh, I'm seriously taking this one and two start as a warning. And I'm hoping that the uh, Red Sox will be occupying my attention in October as they do battle for the uh, American League championship and the opportunity to represent the AL in the World Series. So that is my rant.
0: Well, let me just pick up on that because I can completely disabuse you of that, Jay. The uh, current World Series champion, Houston Astros, uh, I think are the best team in baseball and are going to roar – Back and win the World Series, but I come not to praise the Astros. Um, For those who may not have known, the Astros won the World Series last year. Actually, I come to praise the schedule makers of Major League Baseball because while the American League has, in large part, the teams have been selected for all of the playoffs – Over in the National League, we have still have two very close races in the divisions, and we also have races for the wild card. And how the schedulers come into this is that they have ended literally the last three games of the season with two of the greatest rivalries in the National League. So St. Louis and Chicago, although St. Louis is six games back of Chicago, St. Louis is battling for a wild card slot. And they're playing Chicago, who is now one game behind Milwaukee in the NL Central. Um, So that's going to be a great series in Wrigley. But there's even one better, and that's over in the NL West. The Giants and Dodgers are playing each other for three games. Now, the Giants are out of it, but the Dodgers are battling Colorado for uh, the uh, uh, slot of the NL West. And probably there will not be a wildcard team from the NL West. So this will determine who goes to the playoffs. And as big arrivals as the Houston Astros used to be with the St. Louis Cardinals, with Chicago Cubs, Atlanta Braves, you name the team, nothing compares to the Dodgers Giants. They both hate each other. And this will be the Giants World Series. So for the schedulers who put the Giants and the Dodgers together in San Francisco for the last three games of the season, uh, thank you very much for reminding me how great baseball can be, how uh, much fun these pennant races are, and notwithstanding the fact that the Astros will roar through the American League, back to the World Series, and win again, uh, I'm going to enjoy both these division games, Cubbies and Cards and Dodgers and Giants. So that is my shout out for today. Gentlemen, I wanted to thank you. This has been a really interesting um, podcast on a political event that we all saw clear implications for in not only the corporate world, but in a greater American culture. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Matt's at MKelly at radicalcompliance.com. Jay is at Jay Rosen at com, And Mike Volkoff is at M. Volkoff at Volkofflaw.com. I hope you will join us again for another episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.